morning. Well, good to be back in here with you all this morning, Bethel. It's uh, what a great day to uh, wait, great way to start our Sunday. In the last several years, maybe a decade or so, you've heard a lot in the news about fake news. And not to get, make anything political, I simply want to observe that this is nothing new. Nothing new. It's not even really news. Fake news is what happens when something that is reported isn't true. And politicians understand this. Adelaide Stevenson, uh, the uh, twice presidential candidate, once governor of Illinois, one of the few governors of Illinois that did not spend time in a jail cell, he made this statement. He said, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord, a very present help in trouble. Now, those two things may sound like a contradiction. Calvin, if you could throw that quote up there on the screen for me, please. A lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very help, present help in trouble. You think, oh, that doesn't make sense. Those two are opposites. Yeah, exactly. There, he is saying something here. And it's going to be illustrated today in Joshua chapter 9, tells us the story of the Gibeonites who proved the truth on both sides of this statement. It's the story of something good that came out of something bad. And so we're going to continue in our, on in our series today in Joshua chapter 9, looking at the story of the Gibeonites. In Joshua chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As soon as all of the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now we'll stop right there in verse 1. When they heard of this, what did they hear of? They heard about God stopping up the Jordan River so the people could walk across on dry ground. They heard about the mighty walls of Jericho that came collapsing down. They heard about the destruction of Ai. Probably the, the thing that stuck in their minds the most is after the city of Ai was torn to the ground, Joshua took his troops and he took the king of the city of Ai and he impaled him on a pole until sundown and put him at the city gate and then put, took him down and covered him with a pile of rocks. And it was, it was as if Joshua was raising the black flag to all of these other nations saying, we're taking no prisoners. We're conquering this land and no one, no one will stand in our way. This is total war. That's why the Canaanite kings there in chapter or verse 2 of chapter 9, they decided we got to all come together. Because if we don't come together, this nation of Israel is going to conquer us. If we don't stand together, we're going to all individually fall. But that's not the only response that we're going to see here today. The men of Gibeon decided we're going to do something different. We're going to attempt to make peace with the Jews. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, 
they on their part acted with cunning and went and made provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended. You know, it's hard not to feel some compassion and feel sorry for the Gibeonites. When they heard how Jericho and Ai had fallen to the Jews, they knew that they did not have a chance. They may have been pagans, but they knew enough at this point after watching these miraculous things happen that the God of the universe was on the side of the children of Israel. You know, it was a straightforward calculation for them. The Jews are planning to sweep the entire land. When they get to Gibeon, they will kill us, burn the city. We better make a deal while we can. They also knew that Joshua would never make a deal on his own. Remember what we talked about in week one. What did God tell the nation of Israel to do with the other inhabitants of the land? To wipe them out. To conquer the land completely. And they're on a roll. They were not afraid of anyone or anything. There was no way the Jews would willingly enter into any kind of deal with the Gibeonites. So what would they do? How could they possibly make peace with the Israelites? So the Gibeonites came up with this brilliant two-part plan. Disguise and flattery. This is their plan. And it works almost every single time down through history. The first, they pretend to come from some distant land, not of the land of Israel. And they put on worn clothes, packed moldy bread, and cracked wineskins to make it look like they had been traveling for many weeks from a distant land. And it worked better than they had imagined. When they got to Gilgal, the Jews at first questioned them, but eventually decided they must be telling the truth. And this is in the next part of the verses. I'm kind of summarizing about 12 to 14 verses here for us. And then they resorted to flattery. The Gibeonites poured it on thick with all of their talk about how God had delivered the Jews from Egypt and how they had given them victory over the kings east of the Jordan. And that was clever because it was true and it appealed to the pride of the nation of Israel. Their ruse shouldn't have worked but it did. Both Joshua and the leaders were skeptical at first, but the Gideonites snookered them because they were not expecting a trick. I'm struck by how easy it was to fool the children of Israel. That ought to be a lesson for all of us of how easy it is and how easy we can be blinded by the things of this world. How we can be blinded. It says, In 2 Corinthians, the New Testament says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He comes to us like a friend, but in the end, he turns out to be a hissing serpent. And if you look back on prior relationships with people, you can see how people just were just like the Gibeonites. They flattered you, and they told you lies, when in reality they were the enemy. And they left a wake of destruction in your life. Even on a higher level, for us today, even in the news media, we're told certain things, our health care for our bodies, 
when it's nothing but the mutilation of our bodies. Thinking that we are something else than what God created us to be. That is a lie from Satan. This ought to remind us that things are rarely what they seem to be. It's like talking to an unscrupulous salesman. He's got an answer for everything. I can remember as a kid, you don't see this as much today, but as a kid, I can remember when the, um, the vacuum salesman would go door to door. And my mom was always such a kind soul that she would welcome them in and she would let them do their demonstration. Some of you that are older in here, you can remember those vacuum salesmen that would come. Can't remember the name of the vacuums now, it slipped my mind. What was that? Kirby, Kirby yes, Kirby. Kirby vacuums, they'd come in door to door and those salesmen, I can remember as a kid sitting there thinking every question my mom would ask, they had an answer for everything. And they knew exactly what to say. That is the way Satan is. He knows how to turn your objections into his advantage. You end up signing on the dotted line thinking that you got a deal only later to realize you were tricked by a con man. That's exactly what happened here. Now, the Jews face a major decision. They suspect something is up, but they can't prove it. What do you do, to do then? The text says they sampled the provisions the Gibeonites brought them, which means they checked out the bread in their satchels and saw that it was moldy. That done, they said, well, this seems legit. They've come from a distant land. We need to have allies outside of the nation of Israel, outside of the borders that God has given to us. So let's make a deal. Let's make a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, thinking all was well. Verse 15 says, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the, of the congregation swore to them. To make an oath meant they promised before God not to harm the Gibeonites. That's serious business. You can't make a promise in God's name and then just glibly break it. God takes our promises seriously, even though we may not. One of the things that my dad taught me as a young man, if you make a promise to do something, if you have to crawl to get there to fulfill that promise, you keep your word. Because your word and that promise is important. That's why in Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5, it tells us it's better not to swear before the Lord than to swear an oath and break it later. A deal is a deal. That's why back in the old days, they could do a handshake deal on the transfer of property, because their word and oath actually meant something to them. Don't make promises and break them later. Don't swear an oath you do not intend to keep. The reason why we have so many lawyers today is because we have a society that's built around finding out how you can break your promise and break the oath. Don't say it doesn't matter because it does. God expects his people to be truthful. 
So now the deal is done. The Gibeonites are saved. Joshua and his leaders only made one mistake. And it's a big one. And it's one that we as a people make all the time. Verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They ate the food and they trusted their gut instead of coming and praying before their God. It's a basic blunder. The same thing happens anytime in our lives when we forget to come before the Lord and ask him for wisdom. We get too busy. It happens all the time. Life gets hectic. You have a full agenda. Something comes up, and you have to make a decision right now. You, th- you just get in the, dis- the, the habit of using your gift of discernment instead of taking just a minute or two, coming before a holy God and saying, God, give me wisdom. I'm seeking your face. I'm not sure what is right. We use our gift of discernment. There's many people that I know that have this gift, and they know how to make quick decisions, even in ambiguous situations. Sometimes it's your entrepreneurial people that can do this, your business owners. But making quick decisions will occasionally get you in trouble because you start believing in your own ability to figure things out. You think, I can spot a fraud from a mile away until it doesn't work out, and then you get conned by a grifter. Far better to say, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. Have the spirit of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 when he says, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What a better heart position than that. God, I'm looking to you. I need your wisdom. Remember, This story happened after the miracle of the Jordan, after the conquest of Jericho, after the episode with Achan and the defeat of Ai, after all of those miracle of deliverance, Joshua still forgot to seek the counsel of the Lord. He was a good man who trusted in his gut instincts when he should have asked the Lord for help. He was not any different from you and I because you and I have made this same mistake. If it could happen to him, it could certainly happen to us. And let's be clear about this. We will never get to the place where we do not need the Lord. The moment we think, I've got this, Lord, we're in big trouble and we're sinking fast. So we're going to see this righteous response from the nation of Israel. Everything went fine for three days. Then word got out about the deception. Scripture doesn't tell us how. It's not clear how they found out. Maybe the Gibeonites spilled the beans. Who knows? It's hard to keep a secret like that. Now the Israelites know the truth. What are they going to do? Verse 18. But the people of Israel did not attack them. Because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Then the, all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all of the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we may not touch them. This we will do to, let, to them to let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. They knew. They knew how important an oath sworn before the Lord was, and they could not now attack them. So they spared the Gibeonites and their cities, but decided that they would make them servants of the Jews as woodcutters and water carriers. And when Joshua asked the Gibeonites why had they lied, they told them the truth. Listen to their response. It says, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all of the land and to destroy all of the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we fear greatly for our lives because of you, because of you and did this thing. Now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Give them credit. Gibeonites made no excuses. We, essentially what they were saying was, we knew your God to be the one true God. They lied to save their lives, which does not justify the lie, but it led them to find mercy in the sight of God and not destruction. The final verses give you a glimpse of the grace of God at work. Verse 26 it says, So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation. And this is the interesting part here at the end. And for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Who got the better end of this deal? On the one hand, the Israelites got an endless source of free labor, so that's a win for them. But on the other hand, the Gibeonites save their lives and the lives of their family and their cities. That, so that's the big win then for them. But notice where they ended up. The last part of that verse. They ended up at the altar of the Lord. What happened at the altar? It was the place of sacrifice. The Gibeonites who started out as pagans are now serving at the very heart of the Jewish religion. Every day they served where the animals would be sacrificed to the Lord. They had a front row seat to watch God at work in the divine object lesson of substitution for sins. They learned that the blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. So you have this pagan people and the wickedness of their religions transported now to be at the altar of the Lord to see how a holy God substitutes our sins 
through the shed blood. Man, what an awesome story. They go from a cursing to blessing. Let's stop and ask a few questions. What is this story all about? Is it about the dangers of deception? Yeah, absolutely. You could draw that out. We are a people who must be discerning with deception all around us. Is it the folly of not calling upon the Lord? Yeah, we're guilty of that too. Is it the importance of keeping your oaths? Absolutely. We as a people of God must be about truth and keeping our word. The answer to all of those questions is yes, this story is about all of those things, but there is a more important lesson going on here. And let's run the clock forward through history to find out what happens to these Gibeonites. Because scripture tells us what happens to them. In the very next chapter in Joshua chapter 10, which we're going to look at in the coming weeks, war, the Israelites go to war to protect Gibeon from the other Canaanite kings. Their other Canaanite kings are upset that the Gibeonites made peace with the Israelites. And so you have the Jews protecting the Gibeonites from the other Canaanites. It was during this battle that the sun stood still over Gibeon, giving Joshua one of his greatest victories. And then in Joshua 21, you get down to the end of Joshua, and God starts dividing up the land of Israel to the different tribes. So he says, Judah, you get this portion of land. He says, Benjamin, you get this portion of land. Reuben, you get this portion of land. Where does the city of Gibeah fall? The, the Gibeonites. In Joshua chapter 1, it was named as one of the Levitical cities, which meant that is where the priest would live from the line of Aaron. The guarantee, this guaranteed the inhabitants would have first-hand knowledge for generations of the sacrificial system. We also see 400 years later, the first king of Israel, Saul, massacred some Gibeonites. Remember, you make an oath before God, you've got to keep that oath. So what happened to the nation of Israel because of King Saul's breaking of this oath? God responded by sending a three-year famine on Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And the famine was not list, lifted until seven of King Saul's male descendants were hanged by the Gibeonites as retribution for the massacre. God judged his people for breaking the promise that they had made. You see how serious an oath is before God? When David's mighty men are listed in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, it, it includes Ishmael, the Gibeonite. He was among David's 30 mighty warriors. When Solomon went to the Lord, and the Lord offered him whatever he wanted in this world, this famous story in 1 Kings chapter 3, what was it the one thing that, Saul, or that Solomon asked for? 
wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom. Where was it that Solomon went to to offer up sacrifices? He went to Gibeon. That's where this took place. When the Jews returned from Babylon, from Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah chapter 7 records that 95 men of Gibeon were among them. When Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem a thousand years after the time of our story today, it was men from Gibeon who helped in the, in the reconstruction of the walls. So what should we make from all of this? First, the Israelite kept their promise faithfully, not only while Joshua was alive, but for a thousand years. Second, the Gibeonites became fully integrated into the life of Israel, and some of them serving in high positions. And third, it certainly must mean that they came to understand the one true God and that the only way for salvation is through the substitution of sins, through the sacrificial system. When the land was divided, Gibeon was one of the cities given to the line of Aaron. It became a special place where God was known. Approximately 400 years later, David, King David put the tabernacle in Gibeon. That meant the altar and the priest were in Gibeon. So what does all this mean? The Gibeonites had come in among the people of God. Hundreds of years later, they were still there. Does that mean the Gibeonites became believers? Only God knows the answer to that question, but out of all of the pagan nations in the land, they were the only ones who joined the nation of Israel. You see, where we get out of this story is, you know, it's, it's easy for us to look down our noses at con men or someone like Rahab, the prostitute in Joshua chapter 2 that we looked at several weeks ago, and think, thank God I am nothing like those people. It's easy for us to look down our noses at people we regard as terrible sinners. Let me put it this way, because I need to almost daily remind myself of this truth. God saves people I wouldn't save if I were God. Which is yet one more reason I'm glad he's God and I'm not, because my grace definitely has limits. His does not. He will save the most notorious sinner that turns to him. That even includes self-righteous church people like me. We have unconsciously put ourselves into a different category than the Rahabs and the Gibeonites, thinking that we're different, that we're on a higher pedestal than con men and prostitutes. The truth is there is grace even for wicked, awful sinners like Robert Hodges. We have forgotten what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. First, he describes what we were before Christ. He tells us, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of, of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God 
and the world. That's our position. Without Christ, we have no hope. We have nothing. This next verse is the greatest transition in Scripture. Verse 13. I'm thankful for this but. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. There was a time when we, like Rahab and the Gibeonites, were without hope and without Christ. That's why the but in verse 13 is so important. You were, fill in the blank, whatever awful sin you want to put yourself in, whatever category, you were a sinner without hope. But, (laughs) but, you are now in Christ. There's no greater position. There's no greater place. But now, you're in Christ. That's the difference that grace makes. There's a lesson here if we'll pay attention. God has his people everywhere, even in the midst of unlikely places. You wouldn't think a fallen woman in Jericho would end up in the Hall of, he- the hall of Heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. But that's exactly what happened. You wouldn't think lying con men would end up serving at the altar of the Lord. But that's what happened with the Gibeonites. You see, we're all born rebels. We're all born sinners. We're all born hating God. But Christ... One last word. If God insisted the Jews keep their oath, even though it was foolishly made, how much more will he keep his oath with us? Which was freely given. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He did what? He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which is, it is impossible for God to lie. Meaning, it is impossible. If God says he is going to do something, if he makes an oath, It's impossible for him to break it. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. What is that hope? That hope is Christ. We can have encouragement 
when we flee for refuge to where? To Christ. God wants us to have no doubts about our salvation. So he made a promise and he confirmed it with an oath. He did it so that we might be greatly encouraged to believe in him. God does not change, so that means he will be there when we need him most. When we have failed, when we say, I deserve what I have coming to me, which is death and hell, the Father speaks from heaven and says, those who are in me, those who have found their salvation in Christ, he says, I have made a promise, I have sworn an oath, you cannot cancel my grace. Thank God for his oath. He takes us to heaven in spite of ourselves. You know, it's the word fled in that last verse. It says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope. That's what the Gibeonites did in our passage. They fled to the one true source of hope. And that's what we did when we came to Christ. We fled from Satan from the deceitfulness of this world. And we came to grasp the one true anchor for our soul, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us lay aside all pride and all boasting and thank God that he came to save a bunch of lying con men you and I and give us salvation. Isn't he a great God? Let's pray.